Jonathan, what brings your carcass crawling back into my glorious personal chambers? Surely you recall how our previous visit concluded. <laughs> Sorry, old man. You needed me for something, boss. Do I need you? Oh no, poor boy, quite the opposite. I haven't needed your sorry rump since 1933, and even then it was because I had fallen mysteriously ill on your behalf. Now tell me, what the devil is this film review you've thrown rather unwillingly into my luxurious gaze? Oh, that one then. It's for a new Hitchcock film called Rebecca. It's quite good. Master Jonathan, might I inquire as to whether or not you actually bothered to read your so-called review? I see you wrote here that you think Hitchcock is overrated. Now tell me, do you seek to embarrass this fine institution we've taken so long to build a legacy around? Or perhaps even beyond that, do you seek to embarrass me? I'll have you know that I greatly prefer to be told these things to my face. What? Oh, I don't know. I sort of was alright. I like the symbolism, I guess. I just, uh, I wish there was a ghost is all. A ghost? By Churchill's mother, do you have any idea how idiotic this review comes across? I've heard better ideas from men just on the verge of death. Hmm. Well, that's not a bad idea, actually. Hold on just a moment. The phone is ringing. Yes, yes, it is me, Samuel, managing editor of British Esquire Inquirer. What's that? We've been bought by an American corporation. You're coming at noon to lay off our entire staff. All of our reviews and articles are being given to freelancers, stereotypical British accents are quite rude actually, and you can believe it's not margarine? Gosh. Well Jonathan, I suppose that quite does it. We're done here at British Esquire Inquirer for good this time. Good riddance. Hey boss, cheer up mate. Not all bad. Nothing we can't shake off with a little song. This just feels forced. I mean, what are we doing here? Why do you think this is necessary? Oh, you don't like it? I mean, well, I get it, I guess. I mean, yeah, it was no. Uh, I guess, Sam, we could just do this. Yeah, show. fine. Fuck it. Let's do it. do it anyway. Like, yeah. Welcome, friends and film lovers, to Extra Milestone, the Cinemaholic spin-off series, where we choose a milestone film or two, or celebrating three. a notable, or three, if it's <laughs> Sam Nolan, and he is just laying down some gunfire on these film reviews. Mm-hmm. But yes, we choose a milestone film, or two, or three, or four, hopefully uh, not every, anytime soon. We're not, we haven't uh, done four yet. <laughs> not yet. Uh, when one of these films is celebrating a notable anniversary and then we watch or rewatch the film and discuss whether or not it went the extra mile in its filmmaking thus making it an extra milestone i'm john negroni your host for this dark and stormy evening at the cinemaholics manderley located just a stone's throw from your local internet connection Hmm. and you haven't seen his face this entire time but i promise that is not an artistic decision it's sam noland Yes, uh, also because this is an audio podcast. That probably explains why. <laughs> yes, no faces here. But, John, uh, th- enough about us. The listeners are bored with us. John, we have a guest with us today. For the first time on Extra Milestone, I'm thrilled to invite Emily Kubin Kanak to the stand. Emily, how do you defend yourself? I mean, sorry, how are you doing? <laughs> I plead the fifth on both questions. <laughs> 
It's so great to have you for the first time on the show. For those of you who are, who are milestone purists, uh, Emily, you've been on a couple times with Cinemaholics. Yeah, I think twice. Yeah, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Plot Against America. It's always stuff that starts with a P. Yeah, <laughs> we're breaking the... Uh... Curse is broken because this year or this week or month this or however it feels, honestly, <laughs> we're talking about <laughs> a film that starts with R and a film that starts with either L or T, depending on your, mm. your language. Now, Will Ashton, he could not be here this week, but he did leave us a letter stating that he would be going upstate and that a brief holiday from him should be welcome. Hmm. Um, yeah, I guess I should have read that in the British accent. But oh. uh, yeah, and you're probably wondering, wait, 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 wait. Sam is my guy for Extra Milestone. He usually hosts this stuff. <laughs> and that's true. He's usually probably already very different. <laughs> yes, I do things a little bit differently, as mm. we've all established. But yeah, I'm giving Sam a much-deserved break because, man, you've been ramping up a lot of episodes, a lot of yeah. extra, extra milestones. So we've been, mm -hmm. we can catch up after our, we had an extended hiatus of the show. So Sam, what, what's been on extra milestone recently for the listeners who haven't heard it yet, or they need to go back in time a bit. What, what have you been up to? Uh, been up to quite a lot, actually. In, in just the past month since our Pinocchio episode, we've been uh, we've been really increasing production on these extra milestone episodes. So uh, just after that one, I was going to do an episode with Adonis Gonzalez. I've actually recorded that one. So that one will be coming out shortly, uh, in which we talk about the Grapes of Wrath and Terror mm -hmm. of Mechagodzilla and uh, How to Train Your Dragon. That one was a lot of fun. I can't wait for you all to hear that one. And then uh, just before that, however, John and I, the, the gentleman hosting this very show, we <laughs> talked about Seven Chances, but one of Buster Keaton's uh, greatest achievements in the silent comedy oh, realm that was, fun. that was a ton of fun i really like that one um do you like buster keaton emily yeah i like him he's just one of the actors i haven't like dived into his filmography i feel very oh. embarrassed to say that that's okay i'm i'm the same way with a bunch of silent artists but uh buster keaton is like one of the few that i actually yeah i i re-listened to that episode because i was like man i just I want to rewatch all of his films all over again. And there's a bunch I still haven't seen. So Yeah. It, it's hard to go wrong with Buster Keaton. So I'm actually I'm actually jealous that you get to experience the glory for the first time. Uh so yeah, lots of lots of fun to be found. And then after that, uh last week as a matter of fact, I got together with my old friend Jason Reed from the Anyway That's All I Got Day is one of my greatest friends to this day. And we had a, a awesome trifecta, one of my favorite podcasts I've ever done, where we talked about breathless eyes without a face and deep red uh mm. which was hell of a trifecta of conversations that i really loved recording and the responses for that have been very positive as well so this yeah. show is is going strong and it's and it's not slowing down so settle in <laughs> right right and yeah so like i said before we got two films so we're just gonna jump right into it mm. the first one is the big one rebecca uh, it's one of the more famous Hitchcock films. It usually shows up on a list of like his best movies. Although, you know, he's made so many masterpieces, it's kind of hard to narrow down. And I could imagine uh, a top 10 Hitchcock list maybe not having Rebecca on it. I guess it's yeah, possible. I suppose. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. And it's now celebrating 80 years since it came out in 1940. And if I'm not wrong, I think all three of us had already seen Rebecca. So this one's a rewatch. Uh, John, you are wrong. I had never seen it. You had never seen it. Okay, I could remember if it was one of us who had not. I know, M, you have definitely seen it. Yes, I have. <laughs> yeah, we are ready to talk about it. So Ooh, this will be a exciting. first watch. Yeah. yeah, it's always exciting. Uh, I there have been plenty of times where I've gotten to watch a show for extra or a movie for extra milestone for the first time and been like, ah, I'm so glad this happened. Yeah. Um, and then speaking of which, we have another film coming up that I am, saw for the first time. And who who had already seen the true, if anybody? Uh, just your old friend Sam. Right. This was your rewatch. Okay. Uh, so here we go. Um, let's start with Rebecca. This should be good because this is a pretty well-known film. It is an Alfred Hitchcock film that came out in 1940. It was his first American film. And I did want to point out that this is our third film uh, that we've talked about this year in Extra Milestone that came out in 1940. Oh, yes. Uh, and we're about to do another one with Graves of Wrath, technically. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, the other two were His Girl Friday and Pinocchio. So apparently 1940 was just a terrific year in film, I guess. It mm-hmm. wasn't a bad one. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose there are more to come. Um, so, yeah, like I said, uh, Hitchcock, he, you know, he is a British director. And in the 1930s, he had made up until this point movies like The 39 Steps, uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Lady Vanishes. I think that was like 1938. Yep. And so what's interesting about Rebecca is that he teamed up with one of the most, uh, I, don't, I don't know, not hottest producers, but hot in terms of a hot streak. Can I say it that way? I don't want to uh, gross. <laughs> Um, but yeah, David O. Selznick, who this is 1940, which so right after Gone with the Wind becomes yes. basically the most successful movie of all time, yeah. uh, still is in terms of ticket sales. And uh, it's kind of funny because I think, Sam, uh, how many times have we mentioned Gone with the Wind so far? Oh, it's on it's <laughs> almost every single episode. It comes so up weird. for some reason. Just Gone with the Wind is has has stretched its <laughs> tendrils into so much yeah. of the cinematic landscape. We're like uh, the opposite of HBO Max. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Acknowledging the existence of Gone with the Wind left and right on, yeah. on the extra milestone. Yeah. And we almost like it, I, if it was on the poll for December, I think, I think Young Frankenstein won. It was. Uh, and also I think it counted for January because that was when it went wide. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, so we, we very much, we very well could have talked about it, but I think uh, we've brought it up incidentally so much that we've yeah. practically we practically <laughs> covered the territory i feel plus it's a huge can of worms it would have been wouldn't have been the easiest yeah thing that would have been like a four-hour episode probably most likely <laughs> so rebecca is based on a novel by the british author daphne de moyer yes. and the novel itself was also called rebecca so it's an i think you call that an eponymous novel mm-hmm. and from what i can tell i haven't read this book uh one of you can chime in if you have but apparently this is pretty faithful minus a few changes Hitchcock made here and there because of censorship codes, which I want to ask each of you about uh, concerning uh, specifically one of the one of the I don't know if she's considered a main character, but kind of a secondary character. Yeah. But yeah, wrapping up through it. This movie is 130 minutes long, which I thought, did you guys think this was kind of long for a black and white kind of thriller movie or how would emily how would you describe this movie do you think thriller is a good moniker um 
yeah, psychological thriller. I think that would be a good way of putting it. I think it. so, yeah. Because it's hard because it doesn't have like the raw suspense of most Hitchcock films, but it gets pretty close, I guess. Mm, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, 130 minutes, pretty long, although not as long as Gone with the Wind, obviously. And it didn't uh, <laughs> it didn't cost nearly as much money. I think Gone with the Wind cost about $4 million. Rebecca cost $1.2 million, which is still a lot. That's about how much uh, Pinocchio cost um, right before this. Yeah. And yeah, Rebecca was a box office success. Made almost trip it. It made almost triple its production budget. It was nominated for eleven Academy Awards. Ooh. It won two of them: Best Picture, Best Cinematography in Black and White by the prolific George Barnes. Uh, what do you What do you make of this this uh, Oscar success for the movie, Sam? Do you think it got more than it deserved? About what it deserved? Not enough. Uh, nomination wise, I think it got just about what it deserved. I think it's, uh, to jump ahead a little bit. I quite like this movie having not seen it before. Uh, I got really into it and I could see like, yeah, this must've been, uh, really unusual for the time. Just when it comes to this level of like suspense and layers and stuff that we'll get into. Uh, so I can see why it got a lot. Um, what I, what I, uh, I, I looked up the actual ceremony i believe the 13th academy awards at what it was uh, is what it was and that was actually quite a significant year because that was uh i didn't know this that was the first year when they did the thing where they have the names of the winners in envelopes where they're keeping it secret until the very last minute that was very interesting to find out uh and also lost uh, alfred hitchcock uh five-time best director nominee this was the first time uh zero time winner which is baffling to think about. Absolutely ridiculous. You know who he lost to? John Ford, director of The Grapes of Wrath. How funny is that? Came out the same month. Um, and uh, that movie, The Grapes of Wrath, also took home the award for Best Supporting Actress for Jane Darwell as Ma Jode, uh, who, uh, oh gosh, let me look up her name. Who Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Danvers from this movie. I forget the actress. Judith Anderson. Judith Anderson lost that award. So it's, uh, they're, they're sort of interconnected in that way. So I think there were some that I certainly would give it to. I imagine we can get a little bit more into that, but glad it got a nominations. I think it probably could have stood to win a few more, especially in hindsight. Yeah, I think that's the case. All right, let's get into this movie. the return of the most glamorous motion picture ever made. David O. Selznick and Alfred Hitchcock bring you the Grand Slam Prize winner that made motion picture history. Winner of the Academy Award, voted by America's critics as the best picture of the year. And now, as a result of a national poll, winning new honors as audiences throughout the country vote to see it again. The Selznick Studios successor to Gone with the Wind, Rebecca, brought to the screen with all the warmth and emotion that made millions of readers acclaim Daphne du Maurier's bestseller as the most exciting love story of our time. The fascinating Max de Winter lives on the screen in the person of Laurence Olivier. Why, it's Max de Winter. How do you know? The shy, unsophisticated young girl who dared to follow in the footsteps of the beautiful Rebecca is portrayed by lovely Joan Fontaine. How could I ask you to love me when I knew you loved Rebecca still? Whenever you touched me, I, I knew you were comparing me with Rebecca. What is the mystery of Rebecca? What dread secret is hidden within the silent walls of Manderley? Not only in this room, 
in all the rooms in the house. I can almost hear it now. Do you think the dead come back and watch the living? Tell me, is Mrs. Van Hopper a friend of yours or just a relation? No, she's my employer. I'm what is known as a paid companion. Well, I didn't know companionship could be bought. There's mystery, love, and laughter in Rebecca, the motion picture still unsurpassed for suspenseful romance. Um, I'm calling this segment, it's a little goofy, the dumbwaiter pitch. Mm-hmm. I want to uh, start getting into, because we, we want to we be a little bit more efficient. Uh, we, I want to talk about the general plot and the themes and how you first watched it, but I want to I let each of you uh, talk about that on your own terms. So I figured, like, what's a what's a good question to ask here? So if you came across somebody, if you came across Sam Nolan circa, like, one month ago. Yes. And you had to describe Rebecca to him, um, somebody who's never seen it, maybe someone who's never seen Hitchcock, starting with you, Emily, how would you describe this movie to somebody? Uh, because I'm assuming you would want them to watch it. Yes, I would. Um I'd say it's a Hitchcock thriller about um, this woman who marries a rich guy. And um, when she moves into the house, she finds out that his wife had died in under suspicious circumstances. And um, I guess the maid is a lesbian. Oh boy! Yeah, that is that is a selling point. If ever I think so, I think so. Yes, but I don't want to give away the ending, so I'll stop there. (laughs) Right, right on, right on. Yeah, that's not giving away too much for sure, and we'll we'll be sure not to do any any spoilers. But yes, this is one of those movies where you're like, hmm, (laughs) clearly something's going on. Uh, that's uh, (laughs) underneath the surface. A lot of subtext in this movie. A lot of symbolism. A lot of. little little tricks with the filmmaking to sort of get very subtle points across. Uh, but Sam, okay, hmm. you've got to pitch this thing and yep. it's going to be tough. You're talking to somebody, let's say this person, they don't like classic. Let's say movies. it's, they're not. In let's them. say it's also Wait. me from a month ago. <laughs> I like that. All right. Yeah. And Emily is not okay with this person who does not like classic movies. I don't. I join your distaste. That is a whole, <laughs> that is a whole tangent. I know so many people like that and it always drives me nuts. Because it's never a good reason, is it? That's the worst part. It's each their own, I suppose. It's like more for us, even though that doesn't make sense. <laughs> that makes um, that makes literally no sense. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, but all right, Sam. What's your yeah. what's your pitch to uh, to young Sam? My uh, dumb waiter pitch. Yes, yes. I would say because some some of the listeners have remarked, and rightfully so, and I take great pride in this, that I have a little bit of an eccentric theatrical way of reviewing movies and presenting them. So this is what I would say. And this is, and this is not getting into any of this, the plot specifically, but I would say it is a hastily uh, uh, occurring affair or no, not affair. That implies something extramarital, but like a, a passionate romance between uh, a woman who is in love with this man and a man with an entire graveyard's worth of skeletons in his closet. And the most notable of those skeletons is uh, his very recently deceased wife, Rebecca, hence the title. Uh, that's kind of that's kind of the, the the bread and butter of this movie is the way that this 
character we never see we never really we never even find out what she looks like really uh how she is still lingering in the in the uh what should we say in the spirit of this household and of the people who inhabit it and it's very very uh alluring all the way through and very exciting to watch that's much better i agree Yeah, that was something that definitely struck me the first time I saw this, uh, which is funny um, because when when I first saw this, it was because it was for a film class and we were debating Mrs. Danvers and we were debating Mm. like the intention behind that character. And it was fun. But we definitely had that guy in our class who, holy cow, he loved hearing himself talk. Uh. I'll tell you that much. Um, I won't name names, but it was his, it was uh, me. It wasn't. <laughs> no, no. But his email address is in the show notes. So okay. uh, <laughs> it's it was so cinemaholics podcast at gmail dot com. <laughs> cinemaholics dot what? Cinemaholics.com. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, this, this is a very, very fun movie to pick apart. I, I guess if I had to pitch it to somebody, I'd say that it's like it's it's prototypical Hitchcock. It's him kind of it's early in his career. It's still him finding his voice and, or at least not finding his voice, but like really starting to uh, flex his muscles, I guess is probably a better because at this point he had already made some good movies and you could just sort of feel the confidence coming through the filmmaking here. He's making like bolder gestures uh, with the camera. So Mm. if you're somebody who likes Hitchcock, this is an easy recommend. I mean, even if you're not a completist, this really informs like all of the different things that he was good at with Rebecca. This has like one of the first characters he ever made who, even though this is based on a book, uh, he has that character who is sort of like, seems innocent, seems like everything uh, for this person is going well, but they feel guilty about something or they feel like the nature itself is out to get them <laughs> or a specific character or somebody uh, is out to get them. And it plays with that perspective of what it's like to be written off or to feel guilty by someone. And you don't really have control over it, that like paranoia. And I think that of all of Hitchcock's films, if you like psycho, like if you like um, that deeper text about mm. sex and violence, Rebecca is a very, it's, it's a very pure expression of that stuff that Hitchcock was always sort of wrestling with in, in his movies, specifically Vertigo. But I think in Rebecca, it's like a really good picture of it. But M, how would you, how would you compare Rebecca with some of the other Hitchcock films for somebody who uh, is curious how they interplay? Hmm. Um, I feel like it's more dramatic to me than maybe the other ones um which may have something to do with the source material but um other than that I mean like you said a lot of it is like I don't know like the way that he tells the story is very similar to um his other things um that's what I would say yeah it there is like a yeah through line for him with his movies but yeah I'm curious Sam because you've seen a lot of hitchcock films how does this compare you know i feel like i I don't know i don't know how you feel about this uh not as many as you might think i have this i have this weird thing where i actually i've seen uh i would say a respectable number of hitchcock movies but actually a lot of the bigger ones i've just missed 
I've I mean, never seen game. I've never seen North by Northwest. That gives yeah. you an idea. I've huh. seen I've seen Psycho. That's one of like my five favorite movies ever. Uh, Vertigo, of course. Rear Window, of course. Uh, haven't seen The Birds, which I found out upon doing research <laughs> is actually uh, adapted from a story by the same author, which is fascinating. Did um, you watch uh, Birdemic by mistake? I did not watch Birdemic by mistake. Hitchcock. There's no, you can only watch Birdemic by mistake. That's the only <laughs> way it could ever possibly work out. Fair uh, but no, yeah, I found out uh, this was this was uh, the second of three adaptations that Hitchcock did of Daphne du Maurier. The first one was Jamaica Inn, which I actually have seen, and that one was quite fun. Um, but yeah, I think uh, Rebecca is interesting because it's not it, for for most of the movie. I would, I would say like the first half to two thirds at least uh it is not based on a mystery like it's not really up in the air what something is like sure there's some sure there's some ambiguity or anything but it's not like we're trying to figure out who killed someone uh or who got killed or something like that um the it it seems pretty cut and dry at first and it seems like for a while at least it's just gonna be this sort of uh journey of this couple as they wrestle with, with essentially uh, not really their own demons, but in a way it sort of is just wrestling with essentially this guy's ex-wife who happened, who happened to die under mysterious circumstances. And I like how most of the, uh, that first part of the movie where everything seems pretty, pretty obvious what's going on. Um, it's mostly told through the perspective of uh, what's his name? Uh, Maxim is the character's name. Maxim's you think it's told through his perspective? No, no, no. I think it's told through uh, his uh, his new wife's perspective. And I was oh, trying okay. to think. <laughs> I misheard you. I was like, really? No, no. <laughs> I was. I was. I know it was a long winded sentence. But yeah, I, I realized. I realized a little bit into the movie. Does she have a name? I don't she think does she not. does. Yeah. Well, she didn't have a name in the novel either. Yes, which is which is fascinating. Uh, but for the record, I have not read the novel, but I'd be very curious to. Um, yeah, I was, I was, I, I'm wondering what that was, what that choice was about. Um, but I think it goes to, uh, it it goes to really hammer in that identity she has as this guy's second wife, the second uh, Mrs. Uh, what's what's the De last Winter. name? I'm, De Winter. De Winter. I'm I'm so bad with names. Everyone knows this. Yeah, <laughs> uh, character names are just the the last thing <laughs> that I would put on a resume if such a thing <laughs> were to exist. But yes, yeah, the second well, Mrs. I, I want to hire this so guy, but I don't know his name. It's, I know my own name very well, but <laughs> uh, regardless of that, yeah. So that is, it's really told through through her perspective for most of the movie. Uh, certainly for the first two or so acts of it. And it's really, uh, really gripping to see how she just has to deal with the fact that I am sort of going to be judged against this woman who I've never met, who I know practically nothing about. But even though there's not a ghost in this movie, it really is like Rebecca's ghost is just in every single frame sort of hanging over it to the point where uh, there's a scene where... Uh, Lawrence Olivier and Joan Fontaine, I'm just going to say the actor names, are watching like some home movies that they've recorded on film. And I'm just waiting, just biting my tongue, waiting for Rebecca's name to come up. And it never takes long. So it's really about right. how 
it's just always going to be there. This, this idea that there was someone else who you're sort of competing with uh, beyond the grave. And so that was really fascinating, especially as someone who hasn't really had, uh, to be perfectly honest, a ton of experience with this kind of thing. Um, so that was, that, that was fascinating to see. And I'm curious. We know you haven't married Joan Fontaine, but it's all right. She'll come around. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. I specifically in that scene really like when he literally steps in front of the light of their happy memories. And I'm like, Oh, Hitchcock. <laughs> you <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, bet that was in your screenplay from the if, start. If you'll notice, all throughout the movie, there you, it's everywhere where Joan Fontaine is in shadows, in the shadow of Rebecca, so to speak. Yeah. I'm like, ah, I uh, see what you did there. Well, yes. That's and that's how I've always interpreted the decision. Um, going back to the novel of her not having a name, it's kind of I can sense the author is really trying to get across how. In any marriage, it feels like your life is being like pushed into another person's. And um, it also really fits Hitchcock's work because when he does any sort of movie uh, that has romance in it, it's always about power. It's always about control and a submissive person being taken advantage of by somebody with more power. Mm. And I don't know, I've, I've always found that to be like a very striking thing for a a film director in 1940 or even in 1960, it is pretty interesting how he's been subverting those expectations. And like he was making paranoia thrillers about men. It really is awkward when you marry somebody who used to be with somebody else. Like even yeah. if they weren't married before, if they had like a passionate romance with somebody before you marry them, there is like a real tension there that you understand um, for sure. Like once you get to be that age, but yeah, that was that was my big takeaway. But uh, yeah, Emily, did, did you think there was any deeper meaning there? Do you think that there was something about like marriage and the perspective of this character that really informs like why this movie kind of resonates with people? Um, I mean, simply, I think it is just because of the time. I think like people it, it, of the novel, like people view um, women once they are married to a man that like she is just mrs de winter and like mm -hmm. whatever her own um identity doesn't really matter it's in relation to her husband so um i don't know i feel like that wasn't entirely uncommon but um i think it is definitely a deliberate choice never to mention her name when we mention the first name of rebecca like all the time um Absolutely. Yeah. It, it really like, like Sam said, it drives in the point that like, how is she supposed to replace this person when, you know, her name is not embroidered on anything? Yeah. Or like, how does she make this place her own? There are R's all over the place, almost to a comical degree mm -hmm. to the point where, and again, we're not giving anything away, but there's something that happens at the end of this movie. And it was Selznick idea for there to be a giant R that created sort of organically and Hitchcock oh was like no no we're not doing that and it's I will say this <laughs> good choice that yeah. would have been really distracting <laughs> if an R just appeared in a place yeah. where you would not see an R in the in this very specific circumstance so uh, I could see why someone would think of the idea for like three seconds but the fact that he didn't discard it after that uh, only goes to show that Hitchcock right. was the one with the right idea when it came to that ending. And it worked out because Mask of Zorro took care of it. Um, <laughs> it would come back eventually. So it did. So it did. We haven't talked about, not really, 
Uh, one of one of the most striking performances here, uh, because I think we can agree, yeah, Laurence Olivier, who at this point had done Withering Heights, and uh, Joan Fontaine was a big star. Hitchcock had a thing for having a lot of stars in his movies. No, actually, that's I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you, John. She actually wasn't a big star at this point. That was and that Her was kind of a was a bigger star. Yeah, Olivia Dabland. That was a little that's, bit that's of a, fascinating because she was in a ton of films. Olivia de Havilland was yeah. As a matter of fact, you know what movie Olivia de Havilland was in? Gone with the Wind. <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> it keeps coming back around. But no, yeah, it's your birthday actually too. She's 104. No kidding, that's today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's fa- that's fascinating. I love it. Happy birthday, Olivia de Havilland. If you're listening, <laughs> I sincerely hope you are. That is interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't know too much about Fontaine's career before this, but yeah, I guess this was like the first movie where she really got like a ton of awards acclaim. So that's probably the case because she had been in like little things for sure. I think uh, Suspicion probably came out after this, didn't it? Mm -hmm. It did. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's when she got. Did she win that Oscar? Uh, I think so. I actually I actually don't know. Huh. I'd have I to look, look into that. that too. I, I will look that up. But it is, that was a bit of that was a spot of contention because Lawrence Olivier wanted Vivian Lee to play uh, yeah. uh, Mrs. De Winter, um, who he was dating at the time. So there was a little bit of a mm-hmm. little bit of nepotism involved. And but so, it works because you can tell that he and Fontaine have this weird tension yeah. where it does well, feel like he's acting. <laughs> and did you read the uh, like what Joan Fontaine went through on the set? Um, not in detail, but I heard, yeah, it was pretty rough. Um, apparently, she it was, it was nothing with Hitchcock in particular. Uh, but actually, was it was. Of, was it Hitchcock? Because I thought that they were, because no, they made well, another movie together. What happened was that Laurence Olivier was a little bitter about not having Vivian Lee be able to play this other character. So he was sort of like, you know, just not the nicest person to Joan Fontaine at all. Hitchcock found out about this and decided, like the, like the, Alfred Hitchcock he is. There's no other way I could I could think to describe it. Told everyone on the set to be kind of mean to her. And so as as a way to sort of like Stanley Kubrick after him to get that really uh on edge performance out of her. Uh and as as good as that performance is that really it you it really doesn't feel like they had to go there, you know. Mm. Uh, maybe I was thinking that she was doing more work with uh Selznick. Um that's probably how I have it confused. But yeah, I mean, her career definitely was pretty storied. I know that she had issues with like being typecast and um, this role had a lot to do with that. And Suspicion did too. So I guess that she makes did sense. win oh. for Suspicion, by the way. She did. Okay. A year yeah. later. Good for her. Yeah. Good for her. But yeah, it is. It is a little rude um, that they uh, antagonize this poor woman who is doing a really incredible performance. And I was going to mention to Judith Sandard, uh, Judith uh, Anderson. I said Sanders because I had George Sanders on my mind. Um, Judith Anderson <laughs> as Miss Danvers. I guess so. <laughs> oh, George Sanders in this movie. We'll get to him. Oh, um, yes. But yes, so Mrs. Danvers, this is a very key performance. So Emily, what was your take on this character? You kind of mentioned before, where, and at this point, we'll say like we're you know we're not going to spoil the ending of this movie, but we are going to talk about things that happen kind of in the middle. So if you don't want to know any of that, you probably might want to take this as a chance to, to cut out of this episode or this part of the episode and move on to the Latrue section. Hmm. Uh, But yeah, Emily, what is your hot take for Mrs. Danvers? No pun intended. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know. I've read so much about Rebecca in like um, when it comes to studies of, um, LGBT like representation in old Hollywood. Um, so 
I've always like, I think even before I watched Rebecca kind of came at it, think like knowing the subtext of it. Um, and then like watching the scenes that they include in the celluloid closet, the documentary, like it just feels very overt that Miss um, Stampers is, uh, was in love with Rebecca um, before this happened, which I like. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting read because you don't even have to determine whether or not it was reciprocated because mm-hmm. it still works thematically that this is coming from like a forbidden. I mean, you, here's the thing. I could see somebody being like, you're reading too much into it with modern eyes, but she literally caresses the woman's underwear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And <laughs> that was, I understand. That was something. <laughs> I li- I understand that like, um, you know, some people who might push back against that is like, well, you know, in the book it was a little different. She was more of a jealous mother figure. But I think that's why Hitchcock changed it. I think he wanted it to be more ambiguous because that fits his themes a little bit better. I think the jealous mother thing doesn't quite as easily fit into the paranoia of this movie. And I think that the character at the very beginning is a better subtext that he's already playing with when it comes to the sort of overbearing in-law figure, Um, even though she's not an (laughs) in-law necessarily, but like, you know, she's somebody who um, she establishes in the very beginning of the movie, which is kind of like this Cinderella romance story uh, 10 years before the Disney version would come out. Hmm. And she's so overbearing. She's so, uh, you know, commanding of our main character who doesn't even have a name. And we get that sense early on that she's very submissive and that helps help. It helps us understand why certain things are going to happen the way they do. It's because she feels like she's in the shadow of all of these people striving to get out um, through uh, hopefully romance with a man, which feels a little bit, uh, I don't know, like it's probably not going to work. Yeah. But all right. On that note, Mrs. Danvers, I don't want to move away from this, Sam. <laughs> did you have a take on Mrs. Danvers? Do you think those readings are fair? <laughs> uh, they're not only fair, they're actually well-documented. I, 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 uh, as I understand it, um, Alfred Hitchcock and maybe Selznick too, actually wanted to overtly establish that the character was a lesbian. And so, but of course, because the production code is effing stupid, they said, oh no, we can't have that. <laughs> Uh, and so they just had to do it all in subtext, but you know what? It almost works better that way. And, uh, it, it, I think Mrs. Danvers is kind of just the, the cherry on top that makes this movie what it is, because if you'll notice, um, I found out, I I read this afterwards and it, it clicked in my head as I thought back, they had, they wanted to make it like they wanted to do this effect in such a way that it looked like Mrs. Danvers doesn't walk it's more like she glides through the hallways of the mansion yeah kind of like mary poppins or or what i thought of was in the original uh live action french version of beauty and the beast la belle et la bête yeah by uh, jean cocteau where Belle in that movie literally like glides angelically through the hallway and it's this really well, beauty and the beast like uh the disney version i think steals some stuff from rebecca um, it, kind of like the gothic feel, the idea yeah. of the West Wing being sort of this like artifact of another time. There's a lot of Beauty and the Beast ripping going on there. I mean, Rebecca's inspired a lot of things. Yeah, I guess we no, should be clear. Uh, not the least of which is Citizen Kane. Only a year later, a lot of similarities with Citizen Kane. Uh, I was uh, thinking that in the very first shot, I was like, "Oh man, I forgot." You know, because <laughs> it's been a while. I was like, "Man, this really does have such a similar vibe." <laughs> yeah. 
right down to like, you know, the big mansion and the extramarital affairs and a certain thing that happens towards the end, which we're, we're still going to be a little coy about, but you can see the similarities there. You can see how Orson Welles would have watched Rebecca and been like, you know, I like these ideas. I might write them into my Citizen Kane script or something like that. Uh, and yeah, I think it makes, so you just feel like Miss Danvers could just be like literally just sort of hovering in the wings at any time, ready to show up and plant an idea into Joan Fontaine's head. Uh, And just seeing just sort of this chain of events unfold where they're trying to settle into a happy marriage and they just can't makes for a lot of tension that I think is not, uh, not, not to be underestimated. So that made for a lot of it. And I think the movie really wouldn't be the same without uh, Judith. Is it, is it Anderson? Anderson. Yes. Judith Anderson <laughs> as uh, uh, Mrs. Danvers. Really. I like really to one, think that because my, my sister, she named her firstborn son Anderson. And I like to think that it was after Judith Anderson. She won't admit <laughs> it. And she thinks I'm crazy or something. I don't know. Unrelated. Uh, she might be onto something there. You know, Emily, Samuel, I have not told you what I think of this movie. And okay. I've, I've got something interesting to tell you both. Oh, Nelly. I uh, <laughs> I have some very significant criticisms of this movie. Oh, to the my point where I, I can... Yeah, Emily is uh, I'm the police right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just... There's something about this movie that rubs me the wrong way in a few key areas. I find it really fun to watch and i think that it is really really meticulously well made it's hitchcock working at a great level as always i'm judging it against other hitchcock films i just think that it does feel like three different movies and it i i half like it and i half don't i like the aspect of uh you you do sort of see this woman's in this like whirlwind romance in the very beginning but I don't think there are enough red flags that really key here in on what she's getting into. There are definitely red flags with DeWinter that he is a toxic boy. Um, I think that he has a lot of behaviors that a lot of people watching will see coming and being like, why would you put up with that? That, mm. that is not what a gentleman would do. He literally proposes to her from another room and yeah. it's treated as the most flippant thing ever. Like, ah, yes, you're going to marry me. Of course. Like it's very, uh, and I, I guess I do like that the movie finally gets going for real when we get to the Manderley, and I think all that stuff works well. And then it's just that last third where this it changes into a different movie. We are going to get in a little bit more plot-specific stuff with the ending, but okay. I just think that when it turns, it does the His Girl Friday thing, where it turns into another movie, where it turns into <laughs> like a murder mystery. We got to go here. We got to go there. This person said this. And I don't care about that stuff. Like I missed the suspense and the paranoia and my favorite scene, which is like the costume ball. And um, when they're on the ledge and is she going to jump? All that stuff is so much more interesting to me than trying to absolve this man of something that feels forced. Like it feels like they're trying to make him not a bad person. And by doing that, they have to simplify Rebecca. They have to make her evil, like weirdly evil to the point of like almost parody. And it keeps going and going. And so even though I like the final shot, I think it's a great ending, a great, great way to wrap things up. That's my criticism is I just think it it's too clear cut about 
who Rebecca is and how all this stuff happened. And the mystery is not as satisfying as the journey to get there for me. So that's just my opinion. Emily, Sam, go ahead. Tell me why I need to uh, quit my job and just run away. Surely that's a bit of an exaggeration. That's, that's, that's interesting that you put it that way, that it, that it simplifies uh, Rebecca. Cause the way I look at it is that she's sort of not really been a character up to this point or that's not really the right way to say it, but it's it's. Uh, she's been a presence. She's been a presence, like a lingering, yeah. almost like almost like uh, Harry Lime. Speaking of Orson Welles from the beginning of the Third Man, where all we know is just like what this guy has done and sort of the trail of you know death that he's left, and it's a long time before we actually see him. Uh, in this, of course, we never actually end up seeing Rebecca because of course she's dead. Spoiler alert, that's not the twist is that she was alive this whole time. I think it would be it would be a little bit more uh a little bit more off putting if that were the case and a little bit for sure. Yeah, just it's not the not the most clever twist. Um but yeah so so if if we're getting into the plot, which again they're show notes specifying that kind of thing, uh what we find out is that uh Rebecca has been found uh, in at, at the bottom of the river, which is weird considering that uh, that Maxim de Winter identified her corpse like a year ago. Uh, so all of a sudden, all this crazy stuff is being called into question, uh, and we we find out that and 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 this was this happened a little fast. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it was that Maxim wanted to kill. Uh, uh, Rebecca, right? Is that basically what it was? Um, it's ambiguous. He kind of is like, I wanted to kill it, but he wouldn't have done it. But she was trying to goad him into doing it because she wanted to ruin him, basically, because she yeah. knew she was going to die. And that that's why it gets into the parody for me, where I'm just like, what? Like, why? What made this person so evil? Like, it just seems like, why would she hate him this much? It's not established. And it's just... And I also, sorry, this is a tangent, I guess, but like, it just robs Mrs. De Winter. I hate to call her that, but it robs her of her agency. Yeah. yeah, but like her agency, like she doesn't discover this, she doesn't find out, she doesn't seek the truth, she doesn't even seem to really suspect it. She's just kind of clueless about it, and then he's the one who has to bring it to her, and then he gets bailed out. I don't know. There's something about the plotting here that it just, I don't know. It it just didn't thrill me. I guess. I can see why you would say that, but I think it makes it. I, I think it makes her all the more interesting that she just has. For we've we've seen on multiple occasions that she does not like being compared to Rebecca. Like she's not a huge fan of this presence hanging over her. I'm sure if I'm sh- I'm no doubt if you asked her about it, uh, she would say like, "Yes, I would rather." that we just move on from Rebecca. Could we please? So it's not like she's actively seeking out the truth or anything. Cause she thinks she already knows the truth, which is that Rebecca just, just died somehow. And that was the end of it. And now we move on, but no one around her is willing to move on. We see that again and again throughout the story. And so I think it makes it all the more uh, interesting from this character's perspective, from the second Mrs. De Winter, let's call her from her perspective uh, where it's almost it's it's kind of nightmarish where she finally realizes I've been roped into something even more complicated and uh, and uh, uh, what's the word just dramatic than I even realized before and it was intensely dramatic beforehand. She goes along with it, but but 
before she realizes that there's more to it. Like, I think it just, I think it just all goes, I think it all goes to, to what she's going through it. And it just, it, it really, honestly, it frankly kind of frustrates me that we don't know her name. Cause I think that would have, uh, like if we had found it out at the end, like if it was some sort of a kill bill thing, I think that would have really put a nice button on the story. Well, there's a rumor that Hitchcock wanted to name her um, at one point Daphne after the author, but then oh, decided yeah. it wouldn't make sense. He didn't want to up- upend the book like that, but yeah, it, it would have been a little confusing, like the implications, but even if just, just a regular name, if they had given it to her, that would have been, that would have been neat, but alas, that is not what we got. Even so, I think it's just, it's, it's all part of this journey. And I think, uh, when it when it gets to the conclusion that it does, I think there's this there's this catharsis that has uh, that has that has been long overdue that I think is really is really powerful. I did not see these weird storytelling uh, snafus that John did for the record, although I do. Right. <laughs> I can kind of see what you're getting at, but I don't it, it didn't bother me in the least. All right, Emily, why? Why am I wrong? Why am I misreading Rebecca? Get him. I mean, I. I can't tell you that you um, are wrong in your perception of it. I just, I think like every time I've seen it, I've always just been struck by the way that it can take a different turn in terms of the plot. Like most movies or stories, it seems super linear and like, there's no revelations that seem out of place or like taken in a different direction. I feel like this one does. And I love a murder mystery. And so like, it kind of does veer into that um, in the later part of it. But um, I don't know. I, I love the ending and I feel like you kind of have to get to the point where it does in order to get there so that it feels as um, warranted, if that makes sense. Yeah, because here's my thing, John, with what you're saying, like, maybe it's maybe it's an unusual turn. I'll grant you that it's not it's not the most predictable thing. But uh, I'm trying to think, like, what would the alternative be? Just a whole movie of Rebecca briefly coming up over and over again until eventually they just sort of stop talking about her. I I definitely don't think that's an issue at all. I, I actually really like that she keeps coming up. I just I think there was something sort of like undervalued about letting her be just like, if not a decent person, somebody who was deserving of all this adoration. And I I think there are two directions where one of them is that she lives up to that. She really was this like beautiful person that everyone loved and they just can't get over her. And there's something that speaks true to the human experience about that, that sometimes no matter what you do, you are going to be in the shadow of someone. And in that situation, you probably just need to not be in a relationship with that person because they haven't moved on yet. And that to me would have, you know, I don't want to criticize what movie is, you know, for what I wish it was, but I'm just giving an example of something that I probably would have engaged with a little bit more thoughtfully. Whereas in this case, I just don't understand the point of like, I just think it's simplistic to, to present this story as it's okay. She was evil, you know, like all of this stuff, your, your paranoia was all sort of based, um, if anything on something really, you know, I, I don't know. I just think it lays it on pretty extra thick when it doesn't need to. Again, I am trying to, uh, this is the second time I've seen it. I don't know how I'll interpret it the third, but I am trying to like poke at it a little bit. And, you know, even, even despite the fact that it's such a good movie, I think we can all agree on that. Yeah. Uh, I do think it is, an extra milestone. Um, but I just think yeah. there is something weird about this movie's 
point, its message that I don't think is as elegantly told as some of other Hitchcock's films, which is why if I was making a top 10, I would not include this one. Sure. That's, that's, that's somewhat understandable. I can see that. I want to ask you a question about that, but first it, it occurs to me now, uh, John and I, we've talked about how we first watched this, but Emily, I want to, I'm, I'm very curious. Uh, what is your actual experience with this movie? You said you've seen it several times. Like what was the first time and what, and how has your, uh, uh, view on it grown over time? Hmm. That is a good question because I honestly don't remember. That's even better. (laughs) I feel like, well, my typical viewing experience with older movies is like, oh, it's on TCM, so now I'm going to watch it. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think it was like a Hitchcock um, series that they did, um, and that's when I saw it the first time. Um, But I hadn't seen it since I watched uh, The Cellular Closet like a couple years ago. Um, So I was like super excited to rewatch it and like um, see if the interpretations of Miss Stambers is like uh, true when you watch it all the way through. And it definitely was. And um, it's weird because the only parts that I vividly remember are like in the beginning when they're in the house. And then like once they leave and they have this like trial thing, I like completely block those parts <laughs> out and completely forgot that they happen. So um, maybe that is a testament to what John is saying, that it's like uh, goes in a completely weird direction that your brain ends up blocking out. Yeah. It's, it's certainly a clearly sectioned off like third act of the movie. Um mm-hmm. But it comes about in such a way that I'm I'm curious by by something you said, John, which is the adoration of Rebecca. Um, because as we find out uh, in in sort of a bit of a bit of a surprising line of dialogue, uh, Mister De Winter, Laurence Olivier, says in in a in a passionate emotional outburst to the second Mrs. De Winter says, "I no, I hated Rebecca," and that came as I love that line, by the way, because as when he delivers it, she's smiling and she's yes. trying to hold it back. She's, she's trying can't. not to. But I think it's very interesting because I actually, when I heard that line, I was a little bit surprised at first. But then as I thought back to everything that had happened beforehand, I thought to myself, you know, actually, yeah, he never really expressed like any sort of uh, like mourning or longing or anything of that nature. It's just that he can't not think about her regardless of whether yeah, or not he, he feels liked guilty. Her. So I think, I think that's, that's interesting that even though it doesn't, it doesn't come as a surprise that this specific person, her husband uh, was not fond of Rebecca, that uh, it, it just, it just seems natural to me that the, that the movie would go in the direction that you're taking issue with, which is that maybe she was up to something more mischievous than we first thought. It just, it, it seemed, it seemed uh, like a natural continuation yeah. to me. On this on this level, the movie absolutely works because it brilliantly demonstrates how there is a thin line between grief and guilt. Mm. And you learn in this moment that their love was real or this like romance they had, like he really does care about her. He's not just trying to replace his wife. Like he clearly seems to have affection for her, even though you could argue the performances get in the way of that a little bit. Mm. But I do think that like, it is sort of getting across how this stuff was in her head, this sense of like she could never, you know, he's still in love with this woman and that it seems to be getting in the way of their relationship. But what's really getting in the way of the relationship is something else they need to hash out together. And I think that works pretty well. Um, I guess we can we can now get into the final part of this yes. and just say, 
okay, brass tacks, is this an extra <laughs> milestone? I already said yes. I, And I think what sums up what makes this an extra milestone for me is that there's a scene in this movie where she is, she's is she been tricked by Mrs. Danvers to wear a dress that Rebecca wore not long before she died. And she, our main character, is in this dress and she's walking down the stairs and you know what's going to happen. Uh, the audience has figured it out by now. Yeah. That she's, it actually, you know, it actually happens a lot quicker than I was assuming. I thought the party would go on okay for a little bit and then something would yeah. come up. But no, just immediately right uh, off the bat. Laurence Olivier sees her wearing the dress and says, get out of here with that thing. I cannot believe it. And there's yeah. just this huge row that erupts. The the tension of her walking up to him, his back is turned to her and you as the audience you know what's going to happen, but then it all turns on us. It turns on us the source of that anger and it's just a, it's a brilliant movie when it comes to perspectives and how we can misread people. And even though I have my qualms with it, um, I definitely still think it's absolutely worth a watch. I think it's very crowd pleasing. It's it's very uh, it's very useful and productive to watch if you want any sort of sense of films at the time. And um, like we've said, it was so influential in a lot of its filmmaking and its execution. And it's it is a voluptuous movie for sure. But mm. all right, Emily. Um, have you changed your mind? Do you still like this movie? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do a lot. Um, I definitely think it's an extra milestone for me. Um, I just think it's beautiful to watch. The cinematography's great. I love the score. It's definitely my favorite Joan Fontaine performance. Um, and personally, it's one of my favorite Hitchcocks. Um, but that's just me. Um, but I definitely do think it's like a really good movie to watch if you haven't watched many of like older movies just because it is a Hitchcock. So like it, you feel the suspense, especially towards the end and like the ending. And I just love the last scene so much. It really takes you into the, the chaos of it in ways <laughs> that like I didn't know were possible with the camera at that time, just because film catches on fire but um <laughs> it definitely gives a cool effect at the end yeah i was wondering that too like how did they film that mm-hmm. um, yes i'm a fan of joan fontaine as well and uh she lived a long life she she only passed away in the last decade um which is uh fascinating stuff she actually lived not too far away from where i am right now so hmm. uh, small world after all sam nolan yes <laughs> hey i had nothing to do with it okay I, I, I said no such thing. I just said it was a small world. Um, Do you hear it, audience? Do you hear John <laughs> wrenching my mouth open and shoving the words in? I can't believe it, John. Today, dear diary, Sam accused me of murder on the extra milestone. Again. <laughs> Captain's log, John is manufacturing secrets out of thin air. I do not know what to do about it. Kirk out. Anyway, what? <laughs> All right, Sam. What, are we what, is, about, uh, yeah. what is your denouement on Rebecca? My denouement, yes. Uh, it, it would be weird if I said it wasn't an extra milestone. What with all the praise uh, I've heaped upon it, along with the two of you, yeah, I was really impressed by this. I was, uh, I was, uh, I, I watched it earlier today, and I wouldn't say I had like huge expectations. So it's not like it had any sort of huge thing to live up to. But I had certainly heard about it, and it was, I was, uh, I was interested to see like the only Hitchcock movie that won Best Picture, uh, and it turns out kind of makes sense it's definitely of of the of the big hitchcock movies it's like the most oscary if you know what i'm saying like it's mm-hmm. the most just yeah. sort of 
I don't, I don't mean to say this uh, in a, in a, like a denigrating way, but just sort of the most straightforwardly dramatic, uh, but in a really good way. It, you, you mentioned that it's a good way to sort of get into the time period. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right. Cause it's just a lot of storytelling techniques that were used at the time, just being used to like their absolute maximum, just playing it to the nines and making something, something really special. And I look forward to watching it many more times in the future. It is indeed an extra milestone for all the reasons we've mentioned and more. All right. That is Rebecca. Definitely worth checking out. It's hard to check out um, unless you have the Criterion Blu-ray or the DVD, which you can find online, but it's not on any streaming services. You'd have to seek it out. Um, I think the easiest way is YouTube, unfortunately, uh-huh. which is or not a TCM great quality. When it's over on TCM, yes, yeah. it's not on TCM at the moment. I'm really hoping it comes to HBO Max very soon. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, always check your library. Right now, that's kind of tough um, with not a lot of libraries being open. But Emily, yeah. you're a librarian. And I'm about to be. About Ooh. to be. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's such an easy process to get classic movies through people's local libraries. So definitely want to shout that out. Nice. You may have curbside pickup at your library right now. Yes, mine does, thankfully. Very thankfully. Yeah, I think uh, I've, I've seen Rebecca on the Criterion channel periodically, but it's one of those movies they sort of phase in and out. So it can yeah. it varies from day to day, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I'd also say, what are the better best picture winners for sure? Um, one of the ones that definitely holds up at least. Yeah, it's uh, up there. Honestly, though, I will say this: uh, having just watched *The Grapes of Wrath* recently, I I prefer that movie a tiny bit. So interesting. Okay. Yeah. So if if the if the wins had been reversed, where Hitchcock won Best Director for this and *Grapes of Wrath* won Best Picture, I would be just one iota happier than I am now. <laughs> You'd be one happy Sam. One happy Sam. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about a movie that is a little bit more accessible, uh, easier to stream at least. You can find this movie on the Criterion Channel streaming service, which is how yes. I watched it. And I assume that's how you two watched it. Yep. Indeed. Yes. We are going to talk about The True, which is French for The Whole. So you mm-hmm. can look up either. And I think you can find either um, if you just do a quick old uh, search engine search. But this is a French prison break movie directed by Jacques Becker. Mm-hmm. And it's actually an adaptation of a book that came out in 1957 which is based on a prison break escape attempt that happened in 1947. Of mm-hmm. course, we won't give away. Was it a successful attempt? Not a successful attempt? You'll we have might to actually have to because of certain behind the scenes uh, mm. things that went on. Um, well, we'll, we'll, we'll give a big that. old spoiler warning at that point. But yeah. I would say definitely watch this movie. Uh, yeah. This movie is terrific. Uh, it's a, another movie that's about 130 minutes. I think it's like 132 minutes. Yep. It came out March 18th, 1960, which is why we're bringing it up at this year. Um, so it's now celebrating 60 years, uh, fittingly enough. Nous, on va s'évader, mon vieux. D'ici, d'ici même. Ça, en gros, c'est le plan du sous-sol de la prison. And 
yeah, Sam. So you were the one who were you had seen this movie. You suggested it on the extra milestone for Pinocchio. Yeah. And Will and I were very intrigued by it. We decided we were going to do this with Rebecca. Emily, I think you were seeing for this seeing this for the first time as mm-hmm. well. Yes. Let's get into some context here. Yep. What is what is it about this movie? So you can kind of pitch it out to the listeners as well. What is it about it that you wanted us to see? Like, why why did you think this would do well for an extra milestone? I will tell you, John. And then and after that, I want to I want to know uh, how if either of you have heard about this before because I'm very intrigued by that. But yes, okay. I I watched this movie because and this is just this is really specific, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Uh, on the website Letterbox, which I have been on for almost half a decade now. Uh, I, for a while there, I would go onto the list of all of the highest rated movies on the entire site and be like, you know, which ones, which ones have I not seen or even heard of? And I saw this one way up on the list, uh, this, this poster that said let true on it. I'm like, Oh, what's that about? And, uh, turns out it's a prison movie. I added it to my watch list promptly. And then John, you'll remember this in, uh, late 2018, Filmstruck announced we're terminating our service and Mm. everyone around the world went, no, how (laughs) dare you? This is this. It was, it was really dramatic. Like it actually, I'm not even, I'm not even being, uh, I'm not even exaggerating here. Like I went into a little bit of a depression when I found out that it's going away. Luckily it has a tough time. Tough time. It has been, it has been reincarnated as the criterion channel, which is, uh, not quite as extensive when it comes to a huge library, but still uh, functionally just as good when it when it comes to providing good content. Well worth the money. Um, and of course, I, I don't remember the exact day, but films but Filmstruck was going away on like this specific day. Like if everything is going away that day, and so you have however long it is to watch as many uh, things on our service as you can. Of course, there were hundreds and hundreds that I wanted to see. But this was way up on the list. So I watched Latrue on Halloween Day, 2018, right before I went to see uh, the premiere of The Favorite, actually, which I found out in going back to my uh, diary and everything. So that was fun. And I just remember from the first moment being just really, really captivated by it. Uh, and it was a- that it was able to hold my attention without fail for the entire thing because some i've mentioned this before some of you know uh i have a little bit of add so i kind of have trouble paying attention to certain movies sometimes especially if it's slow and dramatic and contemplative and i love those movies but also i just have to i have to like work hard to make sure that i'm into it and this was completely effortless and so i remember it for that reason but also just beyond that i remember thinking this is like possibly just when it when it comes to actually breaking out of prison the act of escaping from jail this might be the best representation of it because uh this movie is about that that's kind of all there is to it like there's a little bit more background but it's basically just these prisoners breaking out of jail and a lot of the movie is just hammering away at rocks <laughs> and chis- and sawing through like metal poles and stuff and you can see a they built an exact replica of the prison so they actually functionally broke out of the prison in the same way that they would have had to uh had it been the actual true story so seeing it actually happen before our eyes seeing walls be demolished in a way that does not feel artificial at all that was really special uh but also when they're not 
in the in the process of breaking out when they're just sort of sitting around and uh yeah the preparation lo- looking not no not even the preparation i'm just talking about the daily prison life it we don't see a lot of it but it's just sitting in the cell maybe folding a box if you're lucky enough to have gotten that kind of work uh making small talk which i imagine gets old really fast and that's it for who, for God knows how long, and they they talk about their sentences. They don't actually know how long their sentences. So it, it, you really you really see why that kind of life, why that kind of incarceration, uh, is is just so miserable, so existentially empty that anyone would go to such to such great lengths to want to escape. Uh, but that's just that's just kind of the basic overview of it so uh emily i want to know have have you ever heard of this movie before because i know i hadn't before looking it up on letterboxd no i'd never heard of it until you guys told me about it very interesting yes i i'm i'm curious to hear uh uh if if what you thought of it but first jonathan what about yourself i think i had heard of it because i think i was aware of it through the uh other jacques becker film Touche Pas uh, Grisby, I think is how you say it, hmm. which often gets compared to this because I think it shares an actor. And so I, I had that in the back of my head. But, you know, it was never a film on my radar. It was never something that people were like, John, yeah. drop everything. You need to watch <laughs> this movie. Yeah. Usually with Jacques Becker, there are a few other films that people recommend a little bit more readily. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, I was definitely intrigued as soon as you mentioned it because I was like, oh, a Jacques Becker film I haven't seen. There are too many of those as it is. So. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay, so I, gu- I guess with that, let's find out. The suspense is killing me. Uh, Emily, you watched The True. Mm-hmm. What was what what was your reaction to it? I'm very curious. Could you handle The True? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'm going to preface this by saying I'm not a huge fan of Prison Break movies. Okay. Um, not even the show Prison Break. <laughs> but. Um, I enjoyed the direction that it went. I think like without spoiling anything, like the ending is pretty bleak in a Uh way that I think is different than a lot of the other ones that I've seen. And um, I really, really enjoyed that. Very interesting. But I'm, I'm sensing a little bit of a reservation or a hesitation, uh, hesitation perhaps. I don't know. I mean, like when you talk about, how which i didn't read any trivia or anything um we talk about how they recreated the entire prison and like were super dedicated to um showing like the process of it i think they definitely did that really well um i just gets a little um slow when you watch people <laughs> stuff for so long but that's just me um but yeah, I mean, like I enjoyed watching it, especially the ending. Yeah, yeah, the ending is really indelible, and uh, I I watched this with my cousin uh, who hadn't seen it. I I uh, just so happened to say like, "Hey, I'm watching this movie tonight. Want to check it out?" He was like, "Sure," and then he was really into it, really into it. But then when the ending happened, one of the funniest reactions I've ever seen. And so, <laughs> and and it was, uh, it, it's a hell of an ending. So I I imagine we might talk about it a little bit but even even still uh just know it's a corker folks it's a real corker uh <laughs> john you're you sort of alluded to it a little bit earlier but were you a fan of Le true well i, I want to bounce off something that emily said and mm. say that i'm picky when it comes to prison 
movies in general. And I like a bunch of them. Like, I like, uh, who doesn't like The Great Escape? Yeah. And I like Escape from Alcatraz. I like Alcatraz itself. And I was thinking about it a lot during this movie. <laughs> and I like the basic stuff. I like Shawshank Redemption. And, but then other ones, I don't connect, I don't connect with Grand Illusion as well. I don't, okay. Cool Hand Luke. The, yeah, I don't the know. The man of Alcatraz, perhaps? <laughs> and I was thinking a lot about A Man Escaped in this. Yes. Um, Robert Besson's 1956 film. That one's the second best prison movie for the record. That is an incredible film. It's really good. And I think Latrue kind of ruined it for me because it feels like the polar opposite of it, like the other side of a coin. Uh-huh. And one that I think I respect more. I think like A Man Escaped is such a film that is so elegant in its storytelling and it's, you know, kind of like, maybe like Shawshank Redemption to an extent. But I mean, when you have Mozart in your score, it's hard not to be this like melodramatic, you know, we're going to beat you know, this system, we're going to escape yeah. from the Gestapo, all that stuff. I, I will also say real quick that the Shawshank Redemption is not as much about the actual act of breaking out. It's more about True. just sort of uh, like most like that doesn't really come into play until the third act uh, in a big way. But yeah, even so, I think that, yeah, it's a different take on the prison break where it focuses more on justifying the prisoner trying to escape. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the whole does not spend a lot of time doing that. It, it even sort of makes light of why these guys want to get out before they want to get out and, or they can get out. And it's because a little bit of boredom, a little yeah. bit of like, I mean, a few of them seem to be under the impression that they might be in prison for life, but not all of them. A few of them apparently feel like they could just ride this out. Their existence doesn't seem to be all that bad. They yeah. are pretty well treated by the guards. It's a very casual laid back prison. Casual like, I, laid back prison. Isn't it? Dot tumblr.com. That's what With, I want to see. Look, I'm deaf, so I'm not saying this as somebody who's ableist, but these are the deafest prison guards in the history <laughs> oh of cinema. God. Folks, I am, I'm like actually deaf. I have, I wear hearing aids. If I didn't have my hearing aids in, I would still hear these dudes <laughs> blasting away at the floor. That's for one part of the movie, but yes, I it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> it is. It is so nonsensical. Um, but re- regardless, what I appreciate about this film over a man escaped, and I wouldn't dare besmirch Robert Brisson, but I, when it comes to my perspective, there is something about the sweat and the dirt of this movie and how it does not glorify what it means to break out of prison. I found that really effective. And there was a takeaway that I'm still wrapping my head around with this movie that we can get into later, but it it ties into the ending and it ties into what I think Becker was trying to say with this movie. And I think it's something pretty profound, a bit more profound than a typical good versus evil kind of story, which is what we usually get with prison break movies. We don't usually get ones that are this thoughtful, which is why I was probably thinking of Stanford prison experiment, which is (laughs) a strange, strange direction for your brain to go uh, during a movie like this, but that's where it went. Yeah. That's a, that that's, that's very fascinating that you bring it up. Just the, just the sweat of it. And again, like I mentioned, it's uh, a lot of the movie is just the sort of the tediousness of like, you know, having to having to make sure that like they won't be able to find where we've been and how to make sure that 
we like we can uh tell time somehow so that we don't get caught and like functioning dummies out of boxes to make it look like we're still in the cell that's a lot of fun uh just all these little wrinkles that are just so clever and to think that it's all based uh seemingly quite accurately on an actual uh prison escape attempt uh makes it all the more fascinating and i think uh I want to talk a little bit about sort of the the context that we get right at the beginning of this movie, which is that there is this one prisoner. Uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Gaspard, um, who is whose cell is under construction for some reason and has to be moved to a new cell. So they put him in a cell with four other guys uh, who sort of who take to him somewhat uh, in a somewhat friendly manner. But it's they soon reveal like, hey we're we're looking to we're looking to bust out of this joint you in are you in (laughs) Uh, (laughs) to which he says yes sure yeah he's very polite very well mannered and like you kind of wonder at at that point of like should you trust this dude there's something about him and so that they kind of play that up a bit of like the conversation between the the inmates of like well should we trust him we should ask him a few questions and uh, it's like a almost like a play where yeah. you know you feel like these characters are like hashing somebody out to the point where I found it funny where he comes back and he's like, "Were you talking about me?" And they're like, "Why wouldn't we?" I mean, they come on, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that maintained that remains true throughout the entire movie. Those the other four prisoners have way more of a rapport with each other than they do with the new guy throughout the entire thing. So I think that's very that's very smart that they didn't like eventually get along really swimmingly. Um, and so it all it all builds to sort of this this narrative crux uh, that that ultimately decides their fate. And so I think that's really fascinating. Um, yeah, I, uh, I I'm trying to think of what else because thing with this movie is that, like I said before, it's just it's it's just kind of straightforward. Just the act of breaking out of the jail, but it does it so efficiently. Uh, that I'm I'm just with it all the way, and uh, it, it there's something about just that uh, that confidence and just taking a path, like choosing a path and just going down it the entire way that I really can't get enough of. So I yeah, that's 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 probably the thing I love about this movie the most. I I enjoy a good heist movie where it feels like everybody has their defined role. And, you know, Gaspar, he's kind of like the he's the odd man out. He's the newbie. He's the Matt Damon from Ocean's Eleven. You get it. (laughs) But then, you know, you have like your competent, you know, you have Roland, who's kind of this like he's Uh, a bit of the mastermind. Yes. Roland. 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 Yes. Who is, you know, he's not the boss, but he's definitely the person everyone kind of really relies on. And then you have Manu, who is more of like the the Steve Rogers kind of like, all right, gang, like he's he kind of calls the shots like we're, they're not going to do something without his say. And then uh, the reverend who's this kind of like I couldn't put my finger on this guy totally. And I don't know if this is another Mrs. Danvers situation, but I don't know. Am I reading too much into that? Uh, no, I think it's, I think that, I think it's there. He's just sort of, just sort of there to just kind of like do, do whatever he can, you know, just sort of provide the, provide the, the moral backbone of the, of the team. Yeah. yeah. He's really nice to the guards. He's Mr. Congeniality. I guess I was just curious because there is a scene between Manu 
and Gaspar, where I had the feeling of like it was there was something homoerotic going on there. But is that me reading into things, like, it, or what? It, it it hadn't occurred to me. It could very well be there, though. So I I, I don't want to say definitively. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm apologize for, for the anticlimactic uh, response. <laughs> well, John, to answer your question, I don't know. Yes. <laughs> Kind of all there is to it. I was curious though, with Geo, is he supposed to be kind of like the heart of the group or sort of like the soul of it? What was that supposed to be? Oh, which one is Geo? I don't, I'm, I don't remember. He's the one who is like, even if, you know, we make it out, I'm going to stay. Okay. Uh, heart is an int- not the organ I would, I would uh, select. Oh yeah. Um, he does have a bit of a libido. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not also not where I was going, but but I, I like that you're thinking. So, uh, <laughs> well, he does. He asks a bunch of questions of like, all right, who's your girl? Who's your girl? Who's your girl? And it's just like, dude, just relax. Like, yeah, that, that's just for one brief scene. I feel. Um, yeah, but yeah, no, I think uh, I think he's just sort of there to be like kind of the stick in the mud and just sort of uh, you know just provide a little bit of little bit of comic relief where there otherwise would be none. And um, hmm. I think I, I'm I'm realizing as as we go through this cast that they're kind of blending together for me. So maybe that is a weakness of the movie that they not they don't stick out as clearly defined characters in my head. Um, that's interesting. They did for me, but maybe that's just because I'm fresh off of it. So. I you were say that's because so I'm fresh, you, and I'm like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel that way though, Emily? Or do you feel like they all just sort of like I don't know, don't really stand out? Yeah, for me, they kind of blended together, at least like apart from the two guys who kind of like stake everything out before everyone leaves hmm. or tries to leave. That is such a good scene, by the way. Um, I really love the the whole thing where there, he's standing on his shoulders and going around the <laughs> yeah. pillar. It's almost laughable. Like, like it's something that like the yeah. runner would do to avoid yeah, the, the, the stooges or something. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I thought we were going to see like Charlie Chaplin walk in the background or something. Or, yeah. <laughs> Uh, not this movie, not in 1960, but yeah. So, okay. I, I'm curious then, because I, again, I, I'm still sort of like sorting out how I feel about this movie. I'm curious what you guys think. Uh, is it tension you're feeling in this? Like there's some scenes where you do feel something, like you feel like they could get caught at any moment, but then there are other scenes where like, you know, they're fine. Like they're in a situation where no one's going to catch them. Like it's sort of treated as nonchalant, but then something happens. You know, there's like, uh, I won't give it away, but something happens where they think somebody might be done for Mm -hmm. um, and it happens out of nowhere. But I don't know. Is that what works for you, Sam, with this movie, the tension or is it something else? Uh, Partly the tension in those moments where uh, like something goes wrong unexpectedly. And uh, there are a few really close calls that really got my heart racing. Uh, But also uh, I keep mentioning just that, just that sort of what's the word I'm looking for? Just that sort of procedural methodical like day-to-day idea of what it would be like to pull off something like this uh just like all the little all the little like gadgets and uh uh things you would have to to innovate um there's there's one trick that one of the prisoners does with a door that just the the cleverness of it just still blows my mind um and yeah it's just kind of seeing seeing them on the path to success, uh, it probably helps that we don't really get 
a great idea as to like what got them into jail in the first place. It makes them a little bit more sympathetic since we're just sort of relating to that human resistance to captivity. Uh, just seeing them fight back against that bit by bit, pebble by pebble, that's really what does it for me. And so it's it's enough to hook me and reel me in for two hours and 10 minutes straight. Uh, and uh, and it all it all uh, amounts to something at the end, which which just is just the cherry on top. Uh, which I-, I can't decide if I'm if I like that we don't know what got everyone else into this place. And I think I would have to talk about the ending a little bit for that reason. But I guess I'm just sort of curious, like, would that have helped narrow down what I think is a theme of this movie, which I wonder if it is. And again, first watch. And I really haven't had time to process. But I did get the feeling of like, these guys don't really deserve to be in here. Um, At least they don't come across that way. They're hard workers. They, you know, they, like like you said, they have a lot of ingenuity. They seem to be very productive with their time. And it seems like what got them into this mess and the prison might just be incidental. That's certainly what it is for Gaspard, as we find out, seemingly, right? It's like, well, you know, he was just wrong place, wrong time, you know. But then we find out some more things about him that might be a little bit more complex than that. But these guys, like, and also they're just, they're so nice to each other and they're polite and they're, they're just, they seem gentle. Like at no point do you feel like these are some hard prisoners doing some real time here. I thought of the kid yeah. from 400 Bloods. Like he'd mm. be one of these guys. Yeah. Probably. Maybe you so. Know? Yeah. Eventually. <laughs> Eventually. Yeah. In, in one of the four sequels to the 400 Bloods. Uh, no. Yeah. To be fair, it's also not a hard prison. So it doesn't, it doesn't exactly, not a, not a environment that would make for that kind of like, image of a prisoner that we have uh but yeah i could see i could see what you're getting at i guess that's why i'm curious yeah i'm like kind of glad that they all weren't kind of shady characters because then the whole questioning of one of them specifically kind of wouldn't be as strong if like no one is trustworthy um but they all seem to be like super bound together except for the new guy and so I guess if you leave it ambiguous, then you don't have to worry about the audience trying to decide, you know, because everybody has their prejudices about crime. So mm-hmm. if you're like, oh, I'm here because I did this to some audiences, that might be sympathetic. Like, well, he doesn't need to be in prison for that. But then other people might be like, lock him up, <laughs> throw away the key, put him in solitary. Yeah. yeah. So and that's an interesting take. Yeah, I think uh, I think uh, we've, we've talked a lot about this. I think. There are a few things with like the production of it that I want to mention uh, and also uh, possibly maybe allude to the ending, if not just talk about it outright, because we've talked about it too much to not like say what it is, you know, mm-hmm. I'm chomping at the bit. I'm ready when you are. <laughs> OK, so uh, I read up a little bit on the sort of the production of this movie. And like we mentioned, based on a true story that uh, uh, of a the La Santa prison, I believe it was called in France. Um, Jacques Becker read the book, the fictionalized version of it written by Jose Giovanni, found out it was based on a true story, contacted Jose Giovanni and said, Hey, let's like, let's let's join forces. Let's make a movie out of this. Uh, and indeed they did. And as consultants, they, and again, potential spoil spoiler warning here, they hired three of the prisoners involved in it to like 
you know, advise on uh, uh, factual things and stuff. And so that was really fascinating to find out. It makes and it makes it all the more genuine knowing that what you're seeing is probably more or less how it happens. So that's really powerful. Um, but also at the beginning of the movie, we get an introduction by who we eventually find out is uh, Roland, as I called him, the, one of the prisoners. Uh, that's actually one of the guys. He was involved in the prison break. And so a lot of the characters in this movie are unprofessional or a lot of the actors, I should say, are non-professional yeah. actors, uh, To which was Jock Becker's decision to make it feel really genuine, which it does. Uh, but also the fact that it's one of the actual prisoners just makes it that much more fun to watch. Um, and yeah, they reconstructed the prison. They just, and just the fact that they had to get it right. Like they're breaking through walls. So that makes it, uh, all the more fun to think like, okay, we got to get this one take. Cause if we screw it up, we're literally <laughs> going to have to build an entirely new prison. And so that would not be fun. Um, but also I found out uh, very sad was that Jacques Becker tragically died two yeah. weeks after they wrapped production on this, which yeah. is ludicrous to think about. And so per his wishes, they finished the film uh, and uh, to the point where they're actually about 20, 25 minutes still missing to this day that they that the ultimate uh, editor cut out of it. I imagine more hammering, probably. Like I, more I think chiseling. those 20 minutes probably are an explanation for why the plumbers look like they stepped out of a 1950s magazine. Um, Interesting takeaway, but okay. I'm just saying those plumbers were like, oh, you know, I was a little curious <laughs> on that costume design, but all right. Okay. Uh, but yeah, that's so that's a lot of fun. And so I think we can just now that that's out of the way, uh, let's just sort of give away the ending because I'm because this thing is juicy as hell. I do want to say real quick to what you were saying, the realism of this film is what stands out the most probably. And to the point where like there is no like musical score until the very, very end because you don't need it. It's almost like a narrative documentary where you really just here's what happened. And you have narrative stuff in here. Like you have characters, you have dialogue, and you have all that stuff, but it just feels fly on the wall. It doesn't feel at any point like it's overproduced or overstaged. And that is pretty, pretty interesting for a film in 1960. That wasn't very popular at the time by no means. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, very, uh, very unusual in that way. Very, very innovative, uh, thematically and narratively. And, uh, I think, uh, I think we could sort of we could sort of specify now what how exactly it turns out. So what happens is that we find out over the course of the movie that Gaspard is has been put in prison because uh, got in a fight with his with his wife for whatever reason, and she pulled a gun on him, and he grabbed it. They were fighting. The gun went off, and it shot her in the shoulder, like a a wound. Make no mistake, but not like a fatal one and got put in jail for that. And uh, what we find out is towards the end of this movie, after they've done everything they need to do to break out, like they've actually gotten to the other side of the sewer there, they've reached the manhole cover where they can walk out and escape the prison. They're ready to do it that night. Gaspard gets called into the, into the warden's office who says to him, Hey, <laughs> To paraphrase, your wife called and she's not mad anymore. She's <laughs> dropping the charges, and you're and you're uh, like you're free to go 
past like beyond some uh just bureaucracy just some just some busy work and so all of a sudden there's this huge conflict because imagine you're Gaspard and you've and you've helped these other four prisoners you've helped them devise an escape plan you're ready to escape if you go through with it they're going to know that it was you and that like and you're going to be have, you're going to have to be on the run forever or you can rat them all out probably get an even longer sentence for attempting escape uh but it's but just have that uh, have that sort of definitive conclusion in mind. So it's this real it's this real conflict, and we don't actually know what happens because uh, he comes back from the warden's office. They say, "What took you so long? You were in there for like two hours." And he said, "Oh, just uh, just talking." And so they're all putting their putting their outside clothes on, their freedom clothes on, and they have this little mirror attached to a toothbrush, which helps them like look out into the hallway and see if any guards are coming. They look one way, coast is clear. They look the other way. And in the greatest shot of the entire movie, like dozens of cops are standing there looking directly into the mirror. It's such a jump. You're like, whoa, no. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Would Would my cousin Donovan say that? Like jaw hit the floor scream of pain and anguish and and uh and uh just just exclamation and then gaspard screams and then they come rushing in and the siren goes off and it's just so crushing it is such a defeat and it really makes what could have been a really quite good it still would have been almost as good uh if it if they had just escaped and that would have been it it would have been really really satisfying to see them get out but instead that it was all for nothing because just this one little wrench was thrown into it at the last minute. It just makes it all the more memorable. And to, and to this day, that is always what I will think about when I think about this movie is how it all comes crashing down so tremendously right at the end. And I loved every second of it. All right. Let's rip it apart at the themes. Um, my last pun for the evening. The themes. Uh, yes. So, um, what did, what did you think of this ending? Um, what how does it rank on your bleak o meter? <laughs> um, pretty bleak. I'd say nine out of ten. Um, just because I don't know. I feel like what I liked about the movie was the way, like the places that they have to go. It always made me uncomfortable because I kept thinking about whether or not they'll get stuck in that place and how much. Yeah it is than where they were and uh like just in prison and um so then to like go through that and then you're stuck in there i mean like you're still in jail after that like that pretty that sucks yeah (laughs) but i think that if it would have gone completely great and whatever we wouldn't have really cared about the story as much and like it wouldn't separate it from um like any kind of Hollywood escape. And I think it goes really well with like the realism of showing us everything they do to try to get out. And um, this feels like a very realistic um, ending. Yeah. It's, it's what it, that's, that's interesting that you say that, that if they had just escaped, we probably just would have seen it and been like, Oh, that was fun. Cool. But it's because they don't that it sticks in the mind. I hadn't thought about that, but you're totally right. I love that. That's right, because they would have had to have invented 
something dramatic about it. Like with Escape from Alcatraz, like they were successful um, in the real life story of escaping. Now I won't give away what happens to those people because it's, that's still part of the mystery. But in this movie, it's real. It, the realism of what happened informs the realism of the film hmm. because the film is about this is who people really are. And this is how our justice system works, where the person who least deserves to be free, Gaspard in this case, the least honorable person is the one seemingly he will get away with everything. Now, we it, we don't know for sure if his deal with the governor is honored, if he ends up uh, leaving the prison at some point, if it's true that uh, she's withdrawn, his wife, the charges... But I think the movie makes it pretty clear he is a terrible person <laughs> because and they kind of gloss over it a little bit where clearly he was cheating on his wife with uh, a teenage girl who happened to be her sister. Mm. And that gets brought up and like you wonder for a second, you're like, wait a minute, the kind of person who does that, you know, is not this sort of genteel persona he's putting on. And what I like about this movie is that it says something interesting about infidelity and how the type of person who would sell out a spouse um, in the most horrendous way um, will sell somebody else out for something else. You yeah. know, not trying to equate infidelity with um, landing people in prison, but just sort of pointing out how the the mistakes or the sins that we have sort of come from one place as to who we are. And if you're willing to do this thing it kind of informs that you're willing to do this other bad thing because you can justify it in your mind. And the movie is so subtle about showing you that, yeah, this is not a good dude. Like anybody who would do that to his wife. And it makes you wonder like what really happened, um, whether or not like the way he explains it, you know, there's a lot of deception that seems to be happening there as well. So that's what I like about this movie is it paints a portrait of a human being that is complex and pretty bleak, but also pretty true to life and informative. Yeah, it's 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 a hell of a hell of a flick, uh, and I, I I really dig it for all the reasons we talked about. Uh, I think that's about any everything I got. Is there anything else that either of you two had for the true? Just one thing about there's this one shot where they're like walking down this hallway corridor thing, and like the camera stays away in the darkness and then like all you see is their little light going further and further away i just love that so much it looks so cool to me (laughs) yeah there's a lot of a lot of great imagery in this movie that last line um uttered by roland himself you know you feel that that is him yeah laying it on um poor gaspar yeah he's really and he's going to a genuine place for that because that was of course that actually happened so Right, Gosh. that he is showing pity, and they even play it up too. Is like, oh, it's not my first prison break, <laughs> you know, <laughs> having some fun with that true fact. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just like giving this real person a chance to sort of air their grievance and be the hero of a story that normally he wouldn't be, you know, normally in this culture, like the hero of this story would probably be the the warden trying to. We did it. We stomped <laughs> down this prison break by these love lies. Yeah. But, uh, no, this is France in the 1960s, so we have something oh, yes. much more um, insightful about uh, yeah. the prison system for sure. Although I got to say, can you if our prisons were that nice, whew, crime would go down, I think. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> we we may never know. I don't know if it's realistic whatsoever, 
But there was just something weird about like, you know, the, like the cop just like walks in, it's like, oh, hey, what's up? You know, uh, you don't like the soup? Uh, sorry about that. Just like, just, like every Hollywood version of prison that we get fed is such a, you know, like you hate yeah. the food. Well, too bad. And then they hit you. You know, it's just like uh, it, it could be awful. It could be just a difference, like a cultural difference thing, because yes. it is it is a different country. Plus, I the way I read into that was that they probably just don't see any reason to be like to have that kind of uh, antagonistic relationship. Like, what's what's the point of it, really? I saw it as being a very logical way of going about things. That was one thing that I didn't think about until now was like in other like Hollywood versions of prison, there's more enemies within like the inmate population and i feel like there isn't that much of that like feeling that they're probably gonna hurt you in your sleep like the guys that he's sleeping with and the cell and stuff which was interesting to me and they did they didn't at least like play it up as much as american films would yeah yeah and as a matter of fact there's a scene where like prisons have this have this system of like delivering things to other prisons using like a hairbrush and a string that's a lot of fun to see so they have they're they're clearly like they just see no reason to have any animosity specifically towards any prisoners and even the end like there's only a little bit of an outburst but then of course uh they just sort of accept their fate really in a really dignified way so that's fascinating to see all right. Well, I guess that uh, that'll do it. I th- I consider the whole an extra milestone. I don't yes. know about you guys, but uh, do you, I think you do too, right, Sam? A little bit, yeah. It's it's okay, you know. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, Emily, I'm not so sure. You might. It seems like you think it might be like a milestone, maybe not an extra milestone. I don't know. I mean, like what going into this conversation. I was like, mm, I don't know. But like even just discussing, I think what makes it different in within the genre, I think it could be out of appreciation for like what it does. Maybe not my like experience watching it, but like yeah. I know what it achieves in in like how it differs from other movies. So I think that makes it a milestone. All right. Very nice. Certainly deserves to be more widely seen, regardless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you have the Criterion channel, what are you doing? Go, why are you listening to this? We've given away the ending. <laughs> well, speaking of endings, ah. really beginning, Sam Nolan, hmm. what are we talking about on the next milestone? Uh, well, uh, we're going to do that every time. I've done that myself, so I can't be too mad. Um, I can resist. Like moth to flame. M- moth to a uh, flame. Yes. Um yeah, so as I mentioned at the, at the top of the show, I have recorded an episode with Adonis Gonzalez. We've, having foregone some technical difficulties, sort of, sort of weaved uh, our own web of of uh, podcasting, and so most likely either a week or perhaps two weeks from now, you will hear that episode. Then the episode after that, I'm going to be doing an episode with my dear friend, Andrew McMahon, who has not appeared on uh, any podcast so far, but is one of the smartest people I know when it comes to uh, film history. We're going to be t- we're going to be talking about a lot of fun stuff. We haven't decided all of the movies we're going to be talking about, but at least one of them will be Michelangelo Antonioni's The Passenger, which I'm very excited to talk about. He's a really mm. big fan of that movie. I'm not unfond of it myself so we're going to be talking about that and then uh, possibly some others haven't quite decided on that but at least look forward to that and then 
the episode after that, uh, Julia Tatey is returning to the extra milestone after, uh, I guess it'll be over a year at this point. And we also haven't completely finalized what we're going to talk about, but it's looking like it's either going to be the sound of music or East of Eden, or perhaps all quiet on the Western front. Uh, I thought you were going to say slacker, not slacker, John. Uh. That's, that only premiered in April of 1990. It did not go wide until 1991. So next oh, year, okay. baby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I look forward yeah, to it. I look forward to it. And you should as well. But that is for a later date. So a lot of fun stuff on the horizon of the extra milestone. And of course, there is much more even beyond that as we frivolously attempt to catch up to the present one week at a time. We'll get there eventually, I know. All right. Well, then for now, don't forget, you can find... Our Twitter, our Facebook, everything like that in the show notes. Um, our my Twitter and Sam's Twitter or Letterbox, I should say. But yeah. uh, Emily, for listeners who they haven't heard too much of you so far, uh, where they where can they find you on this net that we call the internet? I am always on Twitter, uh, Emily Coop underscore, and uh, there you can find all of my writing on Film School Rejects, mostly about um, film history and old movies. That's right. Lots of stuff to get to there, because uh, a lot of lot of old movies we're gonna we're gonna get into for the rest of the year, because we have tons of time, <laughs> and uh, we are we are that's a silver lining, I guess, for for some of us. So yeah, we'll see you all, I guess, in a week or two or however long. <laughs> we'll figure. And we'll it see, out. of course. Yes, yeah, maybe sooner. Um, and we'll see you on the main show uh, later this weekend, but. For now, I am John Negroni from the Internet, California. And from the Internet, Colorado, I am Sam Noland. Am I doing oh, yeah, and Yeah. You, you don't have to. I, I will do it. I'm, I'm from the Internet, Pittsburgh. I'm Emily. <laughs> I could feel you. You didn't want to. You're like, Pittsburgh's not an Internet. <laughs> it just can't be. <laughs> See you next time.